Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hempill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. Today's podcast focuses on Top Gun Maverick, starting with my interview with director Joseph Kaczynski and followed by my colleague Chris O'Fault's conversation with editor Eddie Hamilton. Joe and Eddie go into detail about how all those great practical flying sequences were shot and what they learned in the process, and there are a lot of fascinating insights and observations here that surprised me and taught me a lot. I hope you enjoy it. You know, one of the things that really impressed me about Maverick was the way that it follows the tradition of the Tony Scott movie and the style he established, but it doesn't really feel imitative of it. And it doesn't feel like you're making a lot of explicit references. It's almost like you kind of absorb Tony Scott into your DNA or something. And I guess my first question is, what was your thinking as far as what you wanted to bring from the original movie and where you wanted to deviate? I guess I kind of thought of it as the Top Gun universe, you know, which uh, is this world where it's always magic hour. It's it's definitely got kind of a timeless quality to it. Uh, if you look closely at Tony's movie, you know, he put classic cars in the film, even though it was shot in the 80s. There's a lot of like cars from the 40s and 50s on the street and, and Charlie's car is like a, you know, a 58 Porsche. So there is this timelessness to it where it doesn't feel rooted to a specific era, even though the film is something we really think of as a quintessential 80s film, it's timeless. It's something you can put on now, and and it, 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 it establishes its own world. So I think that's kind of what I was thinking was I wanted this film to feel like it was in the same universe as the first film, but at the same time, yeah, we didn't want to do the cover band version of it. That's what I, you know, Tom and I would say to each other. We wanted this to be our own our own thing, and, and the way to do that was to make sure that you know, like the first film, it was a rite of passage story for this character, but he's at a different phase of his life. So we're telling a different story and, and we're telling it using all the kind of technology that we have now, but using it in a way to shoot a movie in a really classic way. That is getting it as much of it in his camera in camera as we could. Um, so that was the approach. Yeah, hopefully, you know, we wanted to be like something uh, you could put on, you could put the two movies on together and feel like they went together, but it felt like you know, 35 years have passed. Did you find that you learned things as a director studying what Tony Scott had done in, in, in trying to sort of follow that Tony Scott universe thing? I mean, did it bring new elements to your own kind of, for lack of a better term, filmmaking grammar, you know, that because he maybe did some things differently than you would normally tend to? Yeah, yeah, certainly. You know, it took us a little bit of time to kind of figure out how to light the film so it felt like a Top Gun film. Um you know, uh, I would say typically Cloudy, you know, Cloudy and I have done five movies together. And before that, I would say in terms of lighting, we would go a little softer. And the Top Gun aesthetic is more about this hard key light, kick light coming from the, the back um, and being really kind of strong and not shy with, with how that lighting happened. So that strong key was something that we s- slowly started to get comfortable with as we were shooting. Tony obviously is known for his long lenses, you know, to the point where people that worked with him, uh, uh, camera operators knew exactly, you know, how many feet from the subject the camera should be to be on a 400 mil lens to get the composition that Tony liked on his close-ups. So they would almost know exactly where he'd put the camera. He didn't use a lot of wide angle lenses. So I think, uh, you know, certainly on the, I, I learned how to kind of embrace that long lens style on the close-ups and then introduce a more wide-angle style into the cockpit and some of the the action shots so that you get the geography and they'll bring the world in, which is a little different than I'm sure Tony would have done it. But to get those two styles to mix together um, was something, you know, certainly that was new for me. We introduced for the first time on a film uh, that I've done, uh, introduced some grain into the image. And that was because when it was totally clean, which is how digital cameras are now. They're very, very clean. It just didn't feel like a Top Gun movie until we gave it some texture. So we worked hard uh, developing a grain that felt um, like a good match to the film stock that he shot. Uh, He used a couple different stocks, but something that felt like a good Top Gun grain. Uh, Developed that with Stefan Sonnenfeld at Company 3, which was kind of a fun exercise. You know, the thing that I did at the beginning of the project, which was really useful, was I... uh, along with Jerry, supervised the restoration of the original Top Gun for the re-release that happened maybe a year or two before our movie came out. So I got to watch the original film negative of the original Top Gun 
before it had gone through three or four versions of um, special editions and things that happened over the year, I got to go back to the 86 version, which wasn't quite as contrasty and crunchy as the Top Gun that we've all come to know. So I got to see the original grade, and that was actually kind of a little closer, I think, where we ended up with Maverick. So you mentioned supervising that with Jerry Bruckheimer, which leads me to another question. I mean, you're working here with really one of the kind of last of the great old school producers. I mean, I feel like Bruckheimer is really kind of a throwback to a generation of producers that sort of like almost like the David O. Selznick kind of thing. I mean, he's such a a great showman and producer and his movies all have a real, you know, specific Bruckheimer flavor to them. Um, What was the experience like working with him, working with a strong producer like that? And what does he bring to a movie for you as a director that maybe is a little bit different from what you've had on other films? Well, like a lot of super successful people that I've you know, had the pleasure to work with. Um, uh, He works very, very hard. Despite all the success that he has, he works very hard every single day. Also, he loves the job and has a real passion for it even now, even with, you know, 50 movies under his belt. Um, He has this ability that Tom has as well to step away from the film and watch it like you're a guy who bought his own ticket watching it in the audience, which is very unique, you know, I think. Um, Not everyone has that. So they, both of them, you know, have a really good sense for what the audience, how they're going to feel, which, you know, as a director, you get so far inside your own film that you lose, it's, it's, it's very easy to lose any sort of objective point of view, obviously, because you're inside and, and making things and you know how hard it was to get that shot. So you're very hesitant to throw it out <laughs> uh, when it doesn't belong in the cut at the end. Um, so he's got that ability. Um, and ultimately, he's uh, he's a fierce defender of the director and an amazing ally for the director. And that's why I think you see that the directors he's worked with come back to work with him again and again, Tony Scott being one of them. So my experience was was incredible. And um, we're working together now on a, a movie in the world of Formula One. So we're we're doing it again. It's been great. I want to ask about the casting in the movie because, you know, another thing that is famous about the original Top Gun is it's got this great ensemble and you've got another great ensemble here. And there are a lot of requirements for a cast for a movie like this. It's not just that they have to be great actors. They have to have great chemistry as a unit. They have to be willing to undergo this incredibly arduous training that you put them through. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what that process was like, sort of assembling the ensemble that was there to support crews. As I've learned in this job over the last 12 years, um, you know, I always knew casting is important, but with every project I do, it, it I, I, I realize how even more important it is than I thought. And, and so casting really is, I think, the, the most important job of the director because if you cast it um, incorrectly, you've really um, put yourself against the wall in terms of making the film you want to make. And if you cast it right, you've really given yourself uh, an incredible advantage going into the process, which is always difficult. Uh, so it started on this film with... Uh, the key roles to cast first were um, Rooster and Penny Benjamin. And I had just finished making Only the Brave with Jennifer Connelly and Miles Teller, um, who I just knew were uh, incredible actors, great to work with, and neither had worked with Tom before. So uh, those were two names that I you know, brought up to Tom and Jerry right from the beginning as potentials. Miles, we uh, went through a casting process um, for the role of Rooster. And even though he was kind of a, a favorite going in, uh, we put him through the same auditioning process uh, as, as the other uh, two. And he emerged on top. Um, as the right fit for that role. And, and I couldn't be happier with how what he brought to Rooster is, I think, really something that only he could have done, as is evident in the film. And then Jennifer was, you know, that, that was not a hard case to make to, to both Jerry and Tom. They had tremendous respect for her. And, you know, I think Tom was uh, really excited to meet her and work with her. And she just did, you know, a phenomenal job. I really do. Someone in wrote that she's like the the secret weapon of the movie and I do feel like even though she's in not in all you know all the scenes in the film um she she has a tremendous impact and influence on the kind of emotional journey of Maverick and is a big reason why the movie works uh so those were two key pieces of the puzzle Val Kilmer 
uh, we met with Val, Jerry and I met with Val very early in the project, and it was Val who came up with the notion of Iceman being sick in the film, which was, I thought, a very brave and uh, authentic way to get him into the film and, and, you know, to create that character. So that was, it was an incredible gift from Val to, um, to, to lead us on the way of developing that character and how he could influence Maverick's story. And then after that, you know, all the young pilots was something that uh, I have to give Denise Chamian, our casting director, a lot of credit for just bringing me a lot of faces I had never seen before, people I was not familiar with. And we put them all through a rigorous, you know, testing and reading process to find all, you know, what personalities fit these characters to create this ensemble. And you never know exactly how they're all going to gel, but it was very quickly evident, you know, as, as we put them in training together, even from the first day where we went out to Fallon and we all went out to the officers club together that, that this unit was going to, was going to really work. And, and I think they're all really good friends to this day because of it. You mentioned the audition process and I'm curious for you as a director, how you make the most of the audition process, because something I've found occasionally is that auditioning and acting can be two different skill sets, if you know what I mean. I mean, there's some actors who can be great auditioners and then don't necessarily give you that on the day and vice versa. There are people who are great actors on screen who are terrible auditioners or terrible readers or things like that. So what have you learned over these movies that you've made that um, allows you to make the most of the audition process and really know what you're getting? Yeah. Well, you never know for sure until you've been through the trenches with someone. But what I've learned from auditioning is that the key thing to check is are they uh, flexible and able to change up the performance take to take based on the note? Because um, you know, generally people come in with an idea of how they want to play it, and and you know, the first couple takes you let them show you that version, and it might be an amazing version, it might be the exact right version, but what you want to look for is their ability to change that performance based on the uh, a note or a suggestion. So then, even if they're doing something that's great and would be right for the role, I'll give them a note or ask them to try it a different way or try it the opposite way and just see how flexible they are in changing it up. And you'll find sometimes actors, no matter what note you give them, they still play it the same way they did the first way because they're so kind of locked into that particular performance. Whereas you'll find that others are really comfortable. It's like playing a game of pickup basketball. You know, No matter what happens, they can react and that I think it's a great thing to have on a set where you've got a bunch of great actors who, you know, different ideas are going to come in. The scene might change on the morning and you want uh, an ensemble that's comfortable playing pickup basketball and trying different things because that's where you get the the real magic from. So you mentioned that, you know, one of the guiding principles for this movie going in was you were going to shoot everything as much as you could practically. So you've got these scenes with the actors in the cockpits, real jets, you know, and it's incredible. It's fantastic. The results are great. What was the process like, you know, on, on the Blu-ray and there, there's this featurette where you see the actors undergoing what looks to be pretty arduous training. I mean, it looks like, you know, like they're doing the stuff that you see an officer and a gentleman where the characters are like quitting the Navy because they don't want to go through this yeah. stuff. So um, talk a little bit about that process, you know, why they needed to undergo that, what you feel it brought to the movie and to their performances? Yeah, well, primarily it's a it's a safety issue. Um, if you're going to fly in the backseat of, of an F-18, you need to be um, prepared for an ejection if something goes wrong. If you lose both engines, the only way out is to eject. And that involves, you know, pulling the handle uh, under the seat, you know, a rocket motor blasts your seat out of the top of the plane and you parachute down. Um, so they had to prepare for ejection, know what the right body position was, you know, because you can break your back if you're not sitting straight up and down, uh, guide a parachute, you know, through the air. You know, these are some of these people have never jumped out of an airplane before or skydive, so it would be a totally new thing. And then they have to be prepared to land in the water. And landing in the water with a chute is is a tricky thing. You're wearing a lot of gear. Sometimes you could go land in the water and have to get out of the plane when it's in water. So they had to train to get out of um, both a plane and a helicopter while being submerged and blindfolded. I mean, this is all done in a controlled environment of like a swimming pool so that if something were to go horribly wrong, they'd have a, a chance at getting out of it. So 
that was a requirement just to get in the plane. Um, once you're in the plane in an F-18, uh, because the plane moves at such extreme speeds and has this incredible turning performance, you're, you're able to pull a lot of Gs, which is you know a, a force on your body that pushes all the blood from your head down to your feet. So you have to build up what's called a G tolerance, which is you have to have a, the, the fitness and techniques to be able to keep the blood in your brain so that you don't pass out. And this is something that Tom is used to because he flies aerobatics, but even Top Gun pilots need to continually train to keep that up. So we had to get our actors' G tolerance up. And that was accomplished by Tom creating this flight school that started them in real basic airplanes and worked their way up to the F-18 so that by the time they got in the jet, they were had the uh, G tolerance to handle it. Then you get to the acting part. You know, um, it's a two-seat airplane, so I can't be up there with them. There's no way I can even communicate with them while they're shooting. So we built a, um, a wooden version of the cockpit on the ground uh, that was essentially like a rehearsal plane. And uh, we would have the Navy pilot in the front seat, them in the back seat. We had a mock-up of where the cameras were, the switch they had turned on and on, off and on to, to run the camera. And I would run the scenes of the day with them over and over, like you're rehearsing for a play. And this included not only the lines and the performance, but also where the eye line needed to be, where the plane needed to be doing at the time, where the sun was. And uh, we would rehearse that to the point they knew it down, and then they would go up and have to run the camera, um, you know, make sure that their visor and makeup and everything was right, make sure the sun was in the right place, and shoot the scenes with their pilot alone, come back. We'd put the footage in the monitor and we'd watch it all together. So it was this very unique rehearsal um, performance cycle that we went through for weeks, if not months, to, to get all the footage for the, for the film. And how many cameras are you putting in the cockpit with them and how did you decide where those would be placed? Well, at first the Navy said, you'll be lucky to find a place to put a camera in here because there's so much equipment. Um, we ended up getting six. And the way we did that was we, we went through, my cinematographer and I, Claudio Miranda, we went through the cockpit with the pilot and pointed at every piece of equipment in the backseat and asked them if they needed it to fly uh, for when they were flying us. Because a lot of it was, you know, weapons and radar and, and all this other stuff. So we had them pull all that out. And that gave us enough room to put the recorders in to do six cameras, um, four pointed at the actor um, and two forward-facing over the pilot's shoulder. So those four angles on the actor were a, a tight close-up, which is great for, you know, emotion, uh, a wide, super wide, almost fisheye-like lens that gets all of the environment um, and gives a great sensation of speed, kind of the one that you probably see in the most in the film or when, like, Maverick's taken off from the aircraft carrier, that big high central one that gives you a lot of geography and, and, and velocity. Uh, and then we had a camera on the left and right facing back. So we had views over the uh, actor's left shoulder and right shoulder um, for different action that was happening on each side. So those are the four in the actor. Then we had the two facing forward over the pilot who was dressed in the same helmet and uh, gear as the actor. So it felt like when you're looking forward, you're looking over the actor's shoulder. So it gives the illusion that they're flying the plane themselves. So we spent a lot of time kind of placing those and making sure they had enough variety that in a scene, when you're cutting back to the cockpit, you're getting the variety of angles uh, that you need. Uh, and then in addition, we had, I think, four different mount positions on the outside of the aircraft. Um, that we could use to, to do uh, where, the, where the camera's mounted to the belly or the tail or under the wing um, to give you different angles of the action. So there were a lot, of, a lot of cameras rolling. I think one day we had 26 cameras going simultaneously between all the stuff we were shooting. How are you shooting from outside the plane? I mean, how, when you've got these jets that are flying at whatever incredible speed they're flying at, how do you actually shoot that and get get it where you want and get the action you want. Well, on the first Top Gun, um, almost all of the exterior shots were done uh, from a mountaintop um, in Nevada uh, where they had, Tony had two or four cameras with very long telephoto lenses shooting the planes over the, uh, the flats uh, right near the Top Gun school. 
Um, and the great thing about uh, a ground-to-air camera is because the camera's fixed and the plane is moving, the background moves very fast behind it. So it gives you this great sense of speed. Um, so we did the same thing. In fact, we went to the same mountaintop um, and shot a lot of ground-to-air uh, using that method. But I think where we really innovated uh, was our air-to-air photography. So we had a, um, a smaller fighter jet called an L-39, which is a, a Czechoslovakian fighter that had a one of our cameras mounted on the nose on an operable head. So that was a camera system that was able to keep up with the speed of these jets and do the air-to-air uh, photography that they just it would have been very difficult to do in the in the mid 80s with the equipment they had and that was able to do all the stuff of chasing jets through canyons or leading jets through canyons um you know where you need a camera moving at 550 miles an hour that was a great platform then we also had a traditional helicopter with the same camera mount on it um so that you could put the camera in really remote locations in the mountains like for the third act and get those flybys from the jet. Between all those systems, we were able to get, you know, everything we needed. A really key component, I think, in what makes the flying sequences in this movie great is the sound. I mean, when I saw it in Adolby cinema, you know, it just completely blew me away. And I think the immersive experience was really, really greatly heightened by the use of sound. So talk a little bit about your approach to the sound design and what the kind of guiding principles were there. I mean, we had this amazing reference with the first movie, you know? I mean, I think the first Top Gun was like the kind of home reference for anyone when they bought their surround system. They always put on the first Top Gun uh, because the sound of those jets was just so powerful. And, you know, we spent a year and a half or two years around these things. So we all became very familiar with just the power and the variety of sounds you get. So um, we started by recording real jets. You know, we, we sent the um, team from Skywalker Sound out to the uh, USS Lincoln um, right before we started shooting for a week of just capturing all the sounds of these jets. Um, we had sound uh, teams out uh, in the canyons when we were doing flybys and getting all those amazing sounds. So you start with the reality of it. Then you you start to you know bring in some of the artistry uh, in the mix. We we learned from uh, the editor on the first film, Chris Lebenzon, how a lot of the character of that that Top Gun sound comes from hard cutting. Uh, because they were cutting on film, they were just putting splices together, and that was creating these really sharp transitions. Um, so when a jet comes, you know, on the cut, you'd have this almost explosion or punch in the chest. Uh, and once we adopted that same philosophy to our sound cutting, instead of trying to smooth it all out like you normally would, it really started to feel like a Top Gun film. So uh, it was hitting those cuts really hard, um, using uh, authentic jet sounds wherever you could, layering them up. Um, and then just essentially a mix that lasted almost a year. If you talk from our first kind of temp, I mean, first of all, Eddie Hamilton's avid mix that he did was pretty phenomenal as a starting point and a guide. But then you start mixing for your temp, you know, screenings, uh, and and you just keep building on that um, all the way through the final mix. Um, we spent you know almost a year kind of refining it, and we're able to get in all the the detail and punch that that a movie like this demands. And then in terms of the music, you've got three composers credited on this movie. So, um, what are the kinds of conversations you're having with them, and what's the sort of division of labor in terms of who did what? Well, Harold was the composer on the first film. So the the melodies that he created are, are timeless. Um, so from the very opening bars of Top Gun Maverick, you're, you're, you're hearing Harold's melodies um, and themes. Um, so it was important to me that he be a part of this. And, you know, we use some of his tracks almost untouched and others we took the... Um, took his themes and worked with him to modernize it and weave it into a, a, our kind of more orchestral sound. Uh, Hans Zimmer, you know, uh, a legend, works with Jerry um, for a long time uh, and was able to, you know, create new material that reinterpreted some of the melodies of the first film in a really interesting way. Even uh, Danger Zone, if you listen closely, um, you'll hear the Danger Zone melody in the orchestra 
um, particularly in um, some of it in Dark Star, I think, and then uh, in the third act, you'll hear a lot of it. So, you know, just a genius at being able to kind of reinterpret these themes and and weave them into a, a big orchestral score. And then Lady Gaga, she wrote this song for us, Hold My Hand. And when we first heard it, it was clear that not only was it a great song, uh, anthem for the movie, um, but Hans was so struck by the melody that he felt like it was something he could weave into the themes of the movie earlier. So by the time you really hear that song at the end of the film, you've actually already heard it three or four times. Um, uh, and so it really was this kind of amazing combination of these three musical minds, you know, molded together along with Lauren Balf. Uh, to create the soundtrack for this film. And, you know, normally you'd say that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but um, when you've got professionals at that level working together, it, it really, you know, all, all this flows together seamlessly. Something I'm always fascinated by with movies like this and guys like you and Christopher Nolan who do these, uh, you know, big spectacle films where you're releasing in multiple formats. I mean, there's... IMAX, there's, I think it's called Screen X or whatever yep. it is. There's like, you know, you, and, and then you're going to go, you might go see it in a theater and just see it in the standard 235 or 240 scope format. Yep. And how do you as a director make sure all of those different versions are delivering the movie you want it to be without compromise, but making the most of each of those formats? Because that just seems really kind of crazy to me that <laughs> you're making a movie in so many different, you know, aspect ratios and delivery formats. Yeah, well, we took advantage, you know, I, like I said, I had uh, six cameras in the cockpit. So talking about Screen X for a second. So, um, you know, I had four cameras on the actors and, you know, I, whenever you're looking at a close-up or even the wide shot on Tom um, in the movie, there were two side angles that aren't being used that are running at the same time. So when ScreenX gave me a demo of their format. I said to him, you know, on your previous films, you've had to kind of create digitally what was on those side wings. But I was like, I've got that footage already. You know, I've already got those side angles running all the time. So I have it already done. If you know, And so what we did was we were able to hand over all the footage from those side cameras and basically create 50 minutes of content of live action that we had already shot to fill the wings of Screen X. So to me, that was like an amazing way to utilize all this extra stuff we had, but couldn't fit into the 239 screen. Eddie Hamilton and myself really worked closely with them to um, make, to supervise that version and make sure that the focus and the stories being told on the center screen, but that in some of these action sequences, when your peripheral vision's being filled, it gives you an even stronger sense of speed that seemed to serve the movie and be a unique experience. Not meant to be a replacement or better, just a different one. Uh, IMAX, you know, every film I've done, I've always protected for IMAX when when we shot it because I do feel like when you, when you go to a, an IMAX theater, you are looking for a slightly unique experience and to be able to fill that 70-foot screen, um, top and bottom, uh, when you're sitting that close to it, you're still immersed, you know, just because you have extra headroom. If you're close enough, it just fills uh, fills your vision, but um, without distracting you. And, and you know, IMAX has so much other good things going for it. You know, their sound is really unique because it's full-range speakers in the front and the back. Um, and the experience is really closely monitored and, and kept at reference, which you know, every filmmaker loves, you know, you're not going to go to IMAX and they're no one's ever going to turn it down. It's always going to be at seven. So I love creating in a way that can be utilized across all these formats uh, with the hope that, you know, if people really like the film, they can check it out in, in all of them. Absolutely. Uh, well, I guess to wrap things up, you know, this movie obviously was delayed because of the pandemic. And so throughout the pandemic, you know, you and Cruz and Bruckheimer, you guys are all kind of sitting on this movie and the anticipation is growing. And in fact, the pressure is growing because I don't know how much you were listening to these conversations, but, you know, among people in the film industry and among movie fans, there was this idea 
Maverick is going to save the movies. Like Maverick is going to bring people back to the movies. And it did. I mean, it was kind of, you know, I had Lawrence Kasdan on this podcast and he talked about how it was the movie that drew him out to go see a movie for the first time after the pandemic. And he just went nuts over it. He loved it. And I think we all had that experience of watching it in a theater and feeling like the big screen experience is really back. And I'm curious for you, during that period, while you're waiting and the movie is getting, you know, the date, release date keeps changing and, and, and all that, I mean... And that those expectations keep rising. Did you did did you feel nervous about that? Listen, I knew we we had a movie that we all really liked. You never really know until um, the movie's out there how it's going to play. I also knew um, that we, you know we had a movie we had made for the big screen, and then Tom deserves uh, all the credit for protecting that. You know, he's got the power to um, to do that, and was adamant that this movie had to be seen on the big screen, you know. Um, he was going to keep his arms around it until movie theaters were open and and thriving before putting it out there because we had worked so hard to make it for the big screen, and he's such a proponent and um, protector of that experience. So, you know, the way it happened was it wasn't a two-year push from 2020. If you remember, it was like we would push it out six months and then we get close to that date and then we push out another six months and then we get close and push out. So it was a torturous process, but we knew that we couldn't release the movie on streaming. It had to be seen on in theaters and, and we were just going to have to be patient and wait it out. And thank God, you know, we were able to do that and people showed up. Yeah. I mean, I'm really gr- glad that, you know, Cruz has that kind of power and clout and that he fought for that because it's really a great big screen experience. And uh, it's a great movie and I really have enjoyed talking with you about it. So thanks so much for coming and uh, talking with me. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I don't know if you remember this, but three years ago, maybe it was before the pandemic, we wrote a profile of you. But I also, what I really wanted to know about was how you were working with Chris, Christopher on... um, Fall or on the Mission Impossible movies, in that sense of the onset nature of yeah. being an editor in a film like that. And what was interesting was at that time, you were in the middle of doing Maverick, <laughs> and it was clear that that and 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 there was a thing about you're like you went over all the Mission Impossible stuff, which I would would love to go over. But the thing that was fascinating to me was, and you couldn't talk yeah. that much about it, but you were talking about it was even ten times that with these array cameras. Oh my word! And, uh, and so, so let's let's before we do, and I so I, I've been anxious to yeah. talk about that since you know it, it's amazing because that film obviously took so long to get to us with the pandemic and whatnot. But let's actually take a step back before we go into Maverick because. You're obviously a very good editor, but you've, in this world, especially working with Christopher and Tom, developed this kind of onset rhythm of what to do with these action movies. And it, and there's a huge um, call and there's a huge thing that they're dependent on in terms of information and evaluation that that you're doing on these movies, on um, set, right? Uh, it depends. Uh, certainly with Top Gun, I was there on at the naval bases uh, starting early in the morning and finishing it late at night for day after day after day for months with all the crew and the cast. We were all there together and they had a little edit trailer that they put together. But I would I would sit in all the briefings and listen and have all the footage on my laptop and I could call up stuff uh, if we wanted to refer to something from a previous day. But But there was so much footage coming in every day. I wasn't really able to cut it. I wasn't I wasn't able to mm-hmm. put stuff on a timeline and start building a story because there just wasn't time in the day. What I was able to do is is review it all, watch it all and tell Joe that we had everything that we were hoping we would get. Sometimes Joe Kaczynski would come in and sit with me around 9:30 in the evening. Sometimes we would sit in the edit trailer and I would go I would like have marked up all the emotional beats that I thought we needed and show them. And if we needed to go up again and redo something, then we could do that. But most of the time, the actors had got it. But the the biggest piece of feedback that I could give on Top Gun was the fact that it, there wasn't very much visual energy in the shots because our cameras are locked off, so they cannot move. And if you watch the original Top Gun, Tony Scott moved the cameras around the cockpit quite a bit because it was all rear projection, rear projection on a soundstage. 
and our cameras are locked off. And so the only thing that's moving in the frame is the horizon or the actor's head moving literally as they're looking around. And of course, F-18 pilots are all super cool and they're designed to minimize energy use, fly as fast and straight as possible and not move their bodies unless they phys- unless they have to. But because it's a movie, I encourage, after like two or three days of watching footage, I said, look, we need to ask the pilots to fly a little slightly haphazard so that the horizon is always moving behind them. And the, and the actors need to exaggerate everything that they're doing in the cockpit. So they need to kind of actively look around a lot more and move their head when they're looking at the instruments and really look over their shoulders or above them when they're trying to track other planes in the air. And so that was the one piece of feedback. And I remember sitting with all the actors at one point when we got to the aircraft carrier and going through and saying, this is, this is great stuff. Uh, and this is stuff which is less interesting. And we always prioritized putting the shots in the sequence, which had a lot more visual energy from the horizon or from actors moving. And and so quite a lot of the time we're stealing footage from other bits of the sequence and using it in places that it wasn't originally intended for to keep the visual energy up in the in the you know in the aerial sequences. Um, but I wasn't really on set when they were filming the ground story, which was like the other two thirds of the film. Because you, as an editor, you need to kind of stay up to camera if you can. And if you're on set all the time, you just fall behind because you need to focus all day um, uninterrupted from, you know, eight in the morning straight through. Otherwise, you won't be able to kind of keep up with everything. So so, so what is going up in the air? There's in terms of the camera setup inside that cockpit every time the plane goes up. Is it is it an array of cameras? Is it one lockdown camera? Like what do you when they when they come down? Is it just one angle that you're coming back from? So there are six cameras running all the time. There is a two central cameras, a wider one and a tighter one. And sometimes we would do an ultra tight one if we really wanted to get super close. Like when in some of the shots where Tom is doing his low level, where you know where Maverick does the canyon run and then he's blasting across the desert and then he does the you know, the the imaginary pop up and dive down and he laser sights the little target that they have to hit. Sometimes we would go for a very close shot, which we use sometimes. But basically there's four, there's a wide and a tight. And then there are two kind of low three quarters, which again, have a bit of a wing in. So, um, and and are better for certain eye lines where characters are looking one direction or the other. And it gives us a lot more shot variety. And then there are, so the the actors are sitting in the back. So there's four cameras in the back of the plane pointing at them. And there are two cameras looking over the shoulder of the Top Gun pilot in the front cockpit, who is dressed identically to the the pilot in the back, unless the pilot in the back is a Wizzo, like a fanboy or Bob, in which case the pilot in the front is dressed like Payback or Phoenix. So they would use a kind of female Top Gun pilot with Phoenix's helmet to to fly it because then it looks like it's Bob's POV over her shoulder. So we would get six loads of footage each time and and it would all be grouped together with time codes. So we could. But the first thing we would do is grab the card out of the wide center camera, put it in a playback device and play it immediately that the poor actors landed. And it's very raw because they're, they're having their footage shown to a room of 20 people and they've just landed and it's you know it's not very um private that that kind of feedback it's very public tom's there you know all the top gun guys are there and but we're and there we're evaluating what they've just done and amazingly they would write down time codes of things that they did so that we could jump forward so on their flight report, on their leg, they're writing down the time code of when things happened so we could jump forward quickly in the reviews and see what they were doing. Because to a certain degree, going back up, you know, it's like in, in a normal film world, you know, I mean, you try and do as minimal, minimal takes as possible, but I mean, going back yeah. up <laughs> is a big, it, it's like, I imagine it's it's an expense. Yes. It's also a procedure. It's a yes. time thing. I, I, I imagine with some of these things, it's an unusual situation where this idea of making an evaluation that quickly of yeah, do we have yeah. it, right? That's do the we key. have what do yeah. we need? Yeah, it's it's tricky. The what you have to remember is that we were under pressure to make an ex, make a slam dunk, ten out of ten movie. 
which obviously everyone watching the film wanted it to be, but was expecting it to be a, a cash-in, you know, a cynical cash-in. Like very few people think making a sequel to Top Gun is a good idea. And no one thought it would necessarily be any good. And But we, we all felt that weight of expectation from the audience who wanted to love it, but were just fearful of the fact that it would be a letdown. And so we had the bar, like Tom Cruise set the bar to the highest possible quality level every step of the way through this, you know, two year process, for me at least. For some of it was, you know, for Joe and Claudio, it was three years in total because they spent, you know, months developing the camera systems before we rolled cameras in the air. And to send a jet up the next morning to pick up something if we missed it is uh, a lot easier than doing it months from now. You know, so mm -hmm. everyone is aware of that. Tom Cruise, most of all, he understands that the economy is doing it right away or trying to build it into another sortie, which, which incorporates other parts of the story and getting them to pick up this one emotion again or this this one one little look or whatever it is that we're trying, the little moment that we don't feel we've got. But you, you know, as an editor, you you develop instincts over the years of doing the job where you can feel truthfulness in the footage, which is always what we're trying to get hold of is this sense of, you know, complete truth in a performance. And, you know, the briefings were extremely thorough. You know, every flight was preceded by a two hour briefing where they would go through every single thing they were trying to get in the air. Uh, and so everyone knew what the objective was. So I was review, you know, reviewing the footage with that discussion in mind. But we we got pretty good at it. After after a few weeks, everyone was in a groove, and you know, we pretty much got everything we needed with each flight. And you and you've developed. I mean, because I'm wondering if you talk about this because to a certain degree, um, that role is one. It's a totally different thing, but there's a lot of parallels here with Tom and Chris on the Mission yeah. Impossible movies, which is a which is a different thing, which which is with huge yeah. stunts and things like that. But I mean, there's that idea, and I think that's probably not a full room. That's often <laughs> the, the yes. three of you. But I, I, there's an L. I'm wondering if you could talk because this isn't obviously the first time you've been in that situation. That's with true. Tom in, that in, is in true. This. It's it's you know he knows that I love movies as much as he does. I'm a dreamer at heart. You know, as a kid, I grew up I grew up dreaming of working in Hollywood on projects like this. So he he can see that I share his love for cinema and and the desire to create something that stands the test of time and you know resonates with a worldwide audience. Um and you know, I care about it as much as he does genuinely. And he knows that and can see it in my kind of work ethic every day. And we all know the only thing you have control over in your life is, you know, how you conduct yourself and how hard you work on a daily basis. And so he knows that that I have the film's interest at heart. And when I when I feed back to him, I'm always being very honest about what the strengths of a particular shot are or what could be improved. And if I don't think we've got it, you know, he will quite often. Sometimes um, on mission, I'll be working in a little edit trailer um, away from the soundstage, but I'll have a live feed from the set on my laptop using the QTape playback software that the video tap, the video operator uses. And they will sometimes FaceTime me from the set and go, can you look at that last tape? What do you think? Did we get it? And I just say yes or no. And and if it's a no and they have to do it again, they know that, you know, I'm not just saying it for fun. I'm saying it because I've got a genuine reason that I can articulate about why something's not working. And right now we're filming in South Africa for Mission Impossible for an extraordinary aerial sequence, which you will see um, in the future in, in these movies. And I am I am there every day again, watching all the footage as it comes down. It's slightly different. The, 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 the scale and the scope of the aerial sequence is different um, for this film. But again, it's, you know, Chris is always asking me, what do you think? Did we get it? And I do try and build an assembly as we go because we're getting all the coverage. The problem with Top Gun is they filmed all the interior shots first. So all I had was close-ups of pilots, but I didn't have any exterior shots of the planes for geography and for excitement and for, for the, you know, the ground rush of a plane whizzing past super fast. 
And so it was very hard to cut those sequences. But on, on mission, we're actually filming close-ups and wide shots and helicopter shots and everything all at the same time. So I can start to kind of build the sequence and, and show them what we've got. It's it's kind of it's gonna be stressful with some of these huge action scenes though because because I I because you're well aware and because obviously there is that idea of you don't want to come back and do some of this stuff you know with all with all the with the the, the army that that's involved in doing one of these big stunts it, it's and, and they know that but I and and we all know that that Tom is a, is an amazing producer yes. and is aware of all of this but I mean it's a huge yeah. stress like some of these decisions yeah. I guess no is a difference of like probably like a third yeah. of a million yeah. no, dollars. You're, you're you know, right. I, the thing is that, that I, I remember when when I I remember being slightly overwhelmed by that maybe five or six years ago when I was first put in this position. But I'm very used to it now. And I trust my gut implicitly because I, I, I have confidence based on years of experience that that we have something or we don't have something. The other thing is that when in South Africa, for example, we all live together quite literally. I live with Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise. And I come back every evening from filming. I plug my hard drive in and we sit and I will edit with Chris McQuarrie into the evening. And Tom will will pop in every so often and watch what we're doing. So it, it's a it's a constant discussion. And then we sleep, we wake up, we have breakfast at 6 a.m. or whatever. And we're talking about what we did the day before. And then we go to the set and the conversation continues and we come back and the conversation continues over dinner. And they're evolving the way that Chris and Tom work is they're constantly learning about what's possible to do in these action sequences safely for real. And every, any new ideas they come up with, they incorporate into the sequence going forward. So nothing is sort of set in stone. It's this fluid discussion of and, and this process of discovery because no one has ever done anything like this in any movie ever before and probably never will again. And so... Chris makes a joke about the fact that, you know, by the end of filming a sequence, you're an expert in filming that sequence. And but you will never need to film. You'll never need that knowledge ever again because you're never you're going to try something different next time. Um, so whether it's like that crazy motorcycle chase in, in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation or, you know, the helicopter stunt in Fallout and, you know, there's like five helicopters in the air constantly in New Zealand filming Tom plus cameras mounted to the helicopter. It was how do you even begin? You just, it's baby steps and you kind of, you know, you work up to it. But it's the same with what we're doing in South Africa. It's like no one's done it before. Everyone is learning. We've got world-class pilots, world-class safety experts, and, um, and a very, very uh, competent actor uh, and stunt performer. And by that, I'm, that's the highest compliment I can pay a stunt performer is if, if they're competent and they're, they're and that, by that, I mean, Tom, you know, he genuinely can fly aerobatics. He knows how to skydive. You know, he's done thousands of hours in planes and thousands of skydives. So he's extremely professional and understands the risks and takes everything very, very seriously. But still, it's it's amazing to have a ringside seat to that, I will say. But when it's over, you do all breathe a sigh of relief. I promise you. It's like I remember <laughs> the last day when all the helicopters landed in New Zealand on Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, this enormous weight lifted off everyone's shoulders because we knew that mm -hmm. the sequence was in the can and it was amazing. And, you know, there hadn't been any incidents, you know, any safety issues, you know. It's interesting, going back to something you said before, talking about that idea of, um, you know, there's a thing you would think just going, sending cameras up in a plane would be exciting, but you realize that what works, you know, you were, the example you gave of the, um, the horizons, yeah. fascinating. I'm I'm curious because you know if we do think about the original Top Gun, you do have you know Tony Scott very much directing those scenes where it's like you know it, it, to a certain degree where's the camera moving yeah. it. Um, there's a thing here I want to talk about, and and maybe we, this is now you know these issues that you're facing once the film's done and you're now trying to put this together with Joe in the editing room. There's a thing here that I think you guys did it and you pulled it off. But how much we have to live up there and what you can read up there and tell a story, because obviously you could cut the hell, you know, you could 
you know, there's 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 got to be a limit of how much you can actually cut and let the audience follow. Yes. I have, to, I mean, you guys did a great job. You got great stuff, but I have to imagine there was a whole dramatic language you had to find yeah. in the editing room of how how to make. Yeah, those yeah, work, yeah. Right? The, it was it, it, nothing was set in stone for the aerial photography. Every beat of every dogfight was worked out by a, um, a Top Gun dogfight specialist called. Uh, Tambo and um, he uh, he's like the Top Gun dogfight SME and the SME stands for like special mission expert I think and he was the the kind of the the US Navy's top dogfighting expert he trained all the other Top Gun pilots in dogfighting and he would he would come up with all the different moves that we would use and so everything that they filmed was kind of real you know, and was was stuff that they would actually do in the air. The problem is that 90% of it looks kind of slow and not that exciting on camera because it is, uh, it's very hard, even though the jets are going incredibly fast, it's very hard to create constant, dynamic, exciting shots. So what I would end up doing is go through all the footage and it was enormously time-consuming. Days and days and days of just, sifting through hours and hours of aerial footage to look for very short pieces of incredibly dynamic movement and then build a totally different story out of it that that was not what they did on the day you know because you would be building what looks cool for the film and what is exciting and knowing that it would start out very long but what I would do is I would put the kind of eight out of ten shots the nine out of ten shots and the ten out of ten shots I'd put them all in so we would we would see, we'd be seeing like the 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 top thirty percent of all the best stuff, and then as the sequence kind of compressed down, the eight out of ten shots would kind of pop out of the timeline, and then eventually the nine out of ten shots would pop out. So you were only left with like the absolutely completely awesome shots. But I there's no shortcuts for that, and I would I I, I just took my time to really go through it all because I wanted you know, to look Tom Cruise in the eye and say, this is the very best shot for this moment in the story. Sometimes I would stack up options. So if they ever said to me, can we see what the options are? I would immediately be able to go, well, there's this, there's this, there's this. And I picked this one because of this. And we went through every shot in the movie forensically dozens and dozens of times, you know, over months. It's, it was like, Everything had to be completely awesome from beginning to end. And there was no compromise in that kind of level of quality. Quite often, I would find myself kind of over explaining things about, you know, because there's two types of F-18s. There's single pilot F-18s and there's dual pilot F-18s. And one of our concerns at the beginning was that people wouldn't understand that there are payback and fanboy in one and rooster in another and so we were kind of trying to kind of explain it to people. And then eventually we realized that we just kind of got on with it. And people eventually clicked into the idea that there are, you know, two seat F-18s and single seat F-18s and it wasn't going to be an issue. Uh, and the very in the very first dogfight, we kind of worked out a visual language where we established that Payback and Fanboy are together and then Rooster is in another plane and then Phoenix and Bob are together and Hangman is in another plane. And... You kind of pick it up by osmosis as you go rather than having it over-explained to you. By explain, you also, what you're really meaning with explain is, is, is orientation. orientation. Yeah, it's like understanding geography and so that you're, you're able yeah. to, in, to, to just watch and enjoy the sequence rather than trying to figure it out. Um, and it was, you know, everything started out long and baggy and not very good, like every kind of creative process. And then it's just, it evolves endlessly, uh, you know, over weeks and months and, you know, two years of editing on Top Gun Maverick to get to the, the, the end result. And we were editing literally the, the very first dogfight. I was probably editing that for about a year because we finished it the day before the last day of the final mix. We were still making changes to the edit <laughs> um, because we just, you know, we, it had to be awesome. All of it had to be phenomenal and just totally immersive and exciting and just keep you leaning forward all the time. No let up, you know, that was the key. But part of that, though, and this is the part that I find so fascinating about it, is obviously um, beyond dynamic action and, and having yeah. no let up, 
obviously the thing that we all know and and, and your films do very well um, is obviously you know this all means nothing it, you're not kept at the edge of the seat unless you're involved in the story and with yes. the characters and so what happens so often in these movies not this one is that it almost has to be action 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 and then it's like okay we're going to go off and have this little you know yes you know almost like it, it it's separate it's like here's oh Here's our character yes. in Marvel movies, and we don't have to make fun of them. They do it nauseatingly, where you're like, and you start losing yourself because there's all this action, and then suddenly it's okay, yak 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 yak, Joss Whedon dialogue, and then, okay, back to the action. <laughs> yeah. And 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 the thing is, is that, and to a certain degree, you understand that because it's like, how are you going to sustain that yes. for 20 yes. minutes without? But but the thing is, is that the, what's fascinating to me about what Top Gun is doing is you have that no let up. And you don't necessarily – you never feel like that, those character beats or those character moments are not incorporated into yeah. the action, which is a trick in and of itself. But also – and not it, nothing on the performers here. The performers are so limited in terms of what they can give you to work 100%. with. 100 percent. Yeah. It's, eye, it's all eye acting. Yeah. And But even that though, it's like a damn helmet on and stuff. You know, it's like – you know, it's like all those things that a, an actor could do to give you subtlety of emotion yes. and stuff. No, goes you're, out you're the fucking window correct. When they've got a helmet on flying yeah. a plane. So I, there's a thing here. I want to because there is that thing of like when I, part of what I have to imagine you're figuring out is when I'm building that dynamic thing, where is these character reaction beats yeah. going to land? And and what do I have to work with that's going to that's going to actually get yeah. you to that it, point that you. Your Chris, it's an excellent question. Uh, genuinely, it's it's something that we are aware of constantly. Is why do people care? Why should people care? You know, the audience doesn't owe you anything. You have to you have to make sure that you earn um, their investment, their emotional investment. And what I thought was very clever. I mean, Chris McCory wrote this script and was was involved throughout the post production, along with Joe Kaczynski and Jerry Bruckheimer and Tom Cruise. But as the writer of the film, the way that he structured the training sequences was so elegant because we would we would cut back to the classroom sometimes. So you would get the kind of full face emotional reactions to what was going on when we were cutting to the tack room. That's what we, what we called it. That's what the Top Gun pilots call it. And so you're kind of intercutting with Phoenix and Bob and Hangman and Rooster and Payback and Fanboy in the classroom with what's going on in the air. So you're kind of rolling the emotion from the classroom over into the aerial sequence and also teaching the audience about the stakes of the mission and how low the planes have to go and how fast they have to go and what a G is and how, um, you know, they've got to complete the mission in two and a half minutes or the, you know, the fifth gen fighters from the enemy are going to come and get them. But, but you know, we worked at it so hard to make sure that the audience was kind of educated about all the aerial terminology and the stakes of the mission and the character dynamics, you know, why was Rooster better to pick than Hangman? Phoenix and Bob crashed their plane and yet they were still picked for the final mission, all that stuff. And um, when you kind of buckle in, for, and we, we do spend a lot of time setting up the emotional stakes of, you know, Maverick having to say goodbye to Penny, saying goodbye to Hondo. And, you know, clearly we're, we're kind of setting up the fact that he thinks he's not coming back. And you've got that great moment with Rooster where he's like, you know, um, Bradley, you've got this. And, you know, we'll talk when we get back. And there's this kind of enormous emotional sense of, of uh, you know, foreboding. And this isn't going to end well because and we did, you know, one one thing we did pick up is in the very first scene where Maverick is talking about the mission with um Warlock and Cyclone, we picked up a close-up of Tom, an internal shot of Tom where he says, someone's not coming back from this. So we plant the seed of that idea um, that it's a, basically a suicide mission for somebody right at the beginning of the movie, and that resonates through the whole thing. And then when you get into the final mission, though, you, you've, like, you're carrying all that education and all that emotional investment, and you can just watch the mission play out, and you don't have to stop, apart from the great scene where Maverick and Rooster are in the snow and he pushes him over and, you know, what were you thinking? You told me not to think, which I just love that writing. It's so good. <laughs> um, and so, so we, I, I think just inherently in the way that Chris McQuarrie wrote the script, he incorporated all that emotion 
And the way that we were cross-cutting between the classroom and the aerial sequences, I think, really helps you. And the other thing that we did, Chris, is every line of dialogue from the aerial sequence was recorded endlessly to get every single syllable of every intonation of the line perfect in order to get the exact emotional reaction that we wanted out of the audience. And you can ask the cast. They, they recorded each line 70 times. Um, and we would quite. Do they have to? Do they have to do that up in a plane to get it right, or can they do? They could do it in a chair with you. So, so they would sometimes do it on their phones. You know, I would say come into the cutting room and do it. Sometimes when when we were in the pandemic, we would send microphones to their house that plugged into their phone, and they would we would they would be watching the sequence on their laptop, and they would record the line for us. They would go into their closet and record the lines for us. But you, if you talk to Miles Teller about this, I mean, we just. It was like endless. The ADR sessions were endless in order to get everything just exactly right. And then once we'd got it all, we would review it and, you know, cut everything together and then massage it again further and come up with new lines and compress it more. And that's the joy of having actors with masks is you're constantly rewriting everything. And and a great example of that is in the fight, when, when the F-18s pop up and the SAMs launch the missiles, they all the actors were doing were going one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. They were, they weren't saying anything. They were just like looking scared and shouting numbers or the alphabet. And then we created the, the intensity of that sequence completely from scratch in the cutting room, how Rooster was using his flares and how many Sams are firing and what Maverick's doing and what all the pilots are doing, how they're trying to dive away. And, you know, it was, it was not storyboarded really or scripted at all. It was it was just something that we we had to build editorially. Loads of cool shots of jets and lots of shots of pilots kind of panicking. But you know, we we built it entirely in the editing and recorded all the lines of dialogue and kind of figured out, you know, how to structure that to make it all work to that moment where Maverick does the the Cobra maneuver over Rooster's jet and 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 then he gets shot down. Which, you know, and there's a percentage of the audience who think Maverick actually does die and that we have killed him, which is quite satisfying. Um, but then they look at their watch and they go, oh, there's 20 minutes left. <laughs> I want to come back to something you said because I, I, I want to I understood what you said, but I would love to dig into it just for a second, because I think one of the things that we're talking about here is in writing this. There's a thing here where, and my guess is that Chris is well aware from doing his own action films that there's a, there's a, there's a, and then the inherent limitations of what you can get out of an actor in, 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 in a fighter plane in the middle of a fight. Like there's, there's an element here of, of writing to set up things. And the idea is that, you know, that there's an easier payoff for it. There's an efficient payoff for it. In the, you know, you're not just writing these things to set up the emotional beats. You're not just writing it to to push the story forward. There's also an anticipation to a certain degree of of how efficient you're going to have to be to hit those beats up in a plane. Is that kind of what you're getting in in, in that thing of 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 how you're going to solve that problem in the writing? Is that is that one of the things you're kind of? I, I at think here? so. I mean, one of the things that Chris did and he always does is he uh, he overwrites every scene. He puts in more than we will need deliberately because he knows that we'll be pairing it back and reacting um, organically to how the audience reacts to the scene and what they feel that they might be missing or what there's too much of or not enough of. So we're kind of calibrating the sequences. And because the scenes are overwritten, we have um, extra lines of dialogue, which Tom is Tom Cruise as Maverick is saying to explain something about the mission, which may or may not be landing. And, and then we are constantly rewriting and restructuring all the aerial sequences to make sure that everything that you need to feel about the characters or everything that you need to learn is landing correctly. I think I'm answering your question, Chris, but no, so you know, because I, I, it's funny because I, overwriting and overshooting. And then with the idea being that it actually allows you to actually have one. Yes, that's, no, it's precisely the point. Yeah, and he does that on mission as well. He over explains everything. Because it goes it goes forward and back. It's like suddenly this isn't working. Let's go back and maybe we could change the setup or use this piece of setup. And sometimes it's probably not something you can know while you're writing a film or even shooting of, of you obviously everybody wants efficiency. They want underwriting, but you don't necessarily know 
what you're going right. to need. So you have, you're allowing yourself yeah. more options. Chris, Chris McCorry, he's very experienced at that and he totally understands it. Tom mm. Cruise understands it. And, you know, it takes another minute to roll the camera with a bit more dialogue. It's one minute out of a shoot day, but it buys you all this insurance, you know, a year later in the cutting room when you need to explain something a little clearer to the audience. And filmmaking is this kind of very organic process where, you know, you start with a script and you shoot and then you edit, but it's constantly evolving the entire time. There is no film that is sort of planned out on the page and then exists exactly like that in editing. And, you know, the more you make films, the more you understand that it's this constant conversation with the audience that you, that you have it during the editing process until if you, if you're making, if you're trying to make a film for a mass audience, which Tom Cruise is, you know, Tom and Chris, it's like, they are trying to make mass entertainment unashamedly to work for as many people in the world as possible and make sure that the visual storytelling is, is as strong as it can be. So we don't have to rely on dialogue. And I, I would say that if you watch Top Gun with the sound off, you can pretty much follow almost the entire story without understanding any dialogue because of how the visual storytelling is so strong deliberately so and the same with mission actually when you know it, it just comes down to experienced filmmakers who understand this process of that you know what mm -hmm. you write is never necessarily going to work in an edited version of a movie so chris is always kind of buying himself insurance by writing a few extra lines here and there knowing that we'll cut them out it's fascinating. We did a big deep dive into Succession, which I realized is probably not the thing that people would parallel to Tom to Top Gun. But it, it, it was a it was interesting that um, Jesse, the writer, the showrunner on that one, actually is writing hour and a half episodes. Really, and HBO allowed. And what's interesting is is that HBO will will pay for it. I mean, because obviously, you know, what you're talking about is a few extra lines within a set or something, but you know, that's an extra few days of shooting, you know, to shoot a hour. Yeah, that's and a lot. What, it was fascinating to, one of the things that he's doing is he's build a little, he's building exposition in, in different scenes and giving himself that option of where, where he's yes. going to put it. And there's also an art to writing it that way because, right? Yes. Like <laughs> there's a thing where it's got to be, well, if you eliminate this, it's still going to yeah, work. You no, know? Exactly, exactly. But that's that's the editing process as well. It's, it's very smart to do that. But it does come from you have a kind of spidey sense that you might need this because you might just need, yeah. you know, the breadcrumbs for the audience aren't quite teased out enough. You might need to throw them a couple more M&Ms, you know what I mean, um, mm -hmm. or Reese's Pieces to use an E.T. analogy. And <laughs> um, so but, yeah, I, I couldn't do it. That's why I'm in. That's why I'm. Yeah. You know, I'm very, very privileged to collaborate <laughs> with a writer like Chris McQuarrie, who understands it at a he 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 understands it at a genetic level. You know, he really is an, an expert. I, I mean, it's, he's so so talented at that. Well, Eddie, um, thank you for this. It was wonderful to chat about this. I've been wanting to chat about this movie since you teased it three years ago. <laughs> so great to talk to you, Chris. Thank you for having me on. Mm -hmm.